Chapters three and four of Armageddon twenty four nineteen AD by Philip Francis Nolan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter three Life in the twenty fifth century. We were delayed in starting for quite a while since I had to acquire a few crude ideas about the technique of using these belts. I had been sitting down, for instance, with the belt strapped about me, enjoying an ease similar to that of a comfortable armchair. When I stood up, with a natural exertion of muscular effort, I shot ten feet into the air with a wild instinctive thrashing of arms and legs that amused Wilma greatly. But after some practice I began to get the trick of gauging muscular effort to a minimum of vertical and maximum of horizontal. The correct form, I found, was in a measure comparable to that of skating. I found also that in forest work, particularly, the arms and hands could be used to great advantage in swinging along from branch to branch, so prolonging leaps almost indefinitely at times. In going up the side of the mountain I found that my twentieth-century muscles did have an advantage, in spite of lack of skill with the belt, and since the slopes were very sharp, and most of our leaps were upward, I could have distanced Wilma easily. But when we crossed the ridge and descended, she outstripped me with her superior technique. Choosing the steepest slopes, she would crouch in the top of a tree and propel herself outward, literally diving until, with the loss of horizontal momentum, she would assume a more upright position and float downward. In this manner she would sometimes cover as much as a quarter of a mile in a single leap, while I leaped and scrambled clumsily behind, thoroughly enjoying the novel sensation. Halfway down the mountain we saw another green-clad figure leap out above the treetops toward us. The three of us, perched on an outcropping of rock from which a view of many miles around could be had, while Wilma hastily explained her adventure and my presence to her fellow-guard, whose name was Ellen. I learned later that this was the modern form of Helen. "'You want to report by phone, then, don't you?' Ellen took a compact packet about six inches square from a holster attached to her belt and handed it to Wilma. So far as I could see it had no special receiver for the ear. Wilma merely threw back a lid as though she were opening a book and began to talk. The voice that came back from the machine was as audible as her own. She was queried closely as to the attack upon her, and at considerable length as to myself, and I could tell from the tone of that voice that its owner was not prepared to take me at my face value as readily as Wilma had. For that matter, neither was the other girl. I could realize it from the suspicious glances she threw my way when she thought my attention was elsewhere and the manner in which her hand hovered constantly near her gun holster. Wilma was ordered to bring me in at once, and informed that another scout would take her place on the other side of the mountain. So she closed down the lid of the phone and handed it back to Alan, who seemed relieved to see us departing over the treetops in the direction of the camps. We had covered perhaps ten miles in what seemed to me a surprisingly easy fashion when Wilma explained that from here on we would have to keep to the ground. We were nearing the camps, she said, and there was always the possibility 
that some small Han scout ship, invisible high in the sky, might catch sight of us through a projectoscope and thus find the general location of the camps. Wilma took me to the scout office, which proved to be a small building of irregular shape, conforming to the trees around it, and substantially constructed of green sheet-like material. I was received by the assistant scout boss, who reported my arrival at once to the historical office, and to officials he called the psycho-boss and the history-boss, who came in a few minutes later. The attitude of all three men was at first polite but skeptical, and Wilma's ardent advocacy seemed to amuse them secretly. For the next two hours I talked, explained, and answered questions. I had to explain in detail the manner of my life in the twentieth century and my understanding of customs, habits, business, science, and the history of that period, and about developments in the centuries that had elapsed. Had I been in a classroom I would have come through the examination with a very poor mark, for I was unable to give any answer to fully half of their questions. But before long I realized that the majority of these questions were designed as traps. Objects of whose purpose I knew nothing were casually handed to me, and I was watched keenly as I handled them. In the end I could see both amazement and belief begin to show in the faces of my inquisitors, and at last the historical and psycho-bosses agreed openly that they could find no flaw in my story or reactions, and that, unbelievable as it seemed, my story must be accepted as genuine. They took me at once to Big Boss Hart. He was a portly man with a poker face. He would probably have been the successful politician even in the twentieth century. They gave him a brief outline of my story and a report of their examination of me. He made no comment other than to nod his acceptance of it. Then he turned to me. "'How does it feel?' he asked. "'Do we look funny to you?' "'A bit strange,' I admitted. "'But I'm beginning to lose that dazed feeling, though I can see I have an awful lot to learn.' "'Maybe we can learn some things from you, too,' he said. "'So you fought in the First World War. Do you know we have very little left in the way of records of the details of that war? That is, the precise conditions under which it was fought, and the tactics employed.' We forgot many things during the Han Terror, and, well, I think you might have a lot of ideas worth thinking over for our raid masters. By the way, now that you're here, and can't go back to your own century, so to speak, what do you want to do? You're welcome to become one of us. Or perhaps you'd just like to visit with us for a while and then look around among the other gangs. Maybe you'd like some of the others better. Don't make up your mind now. We'll put you down as an exchange for a while. Let's see. You and Bill Hearn ought to get along well together. He's camp boss of number 34 when he isn't acting as raid boss or scout boss. There's a vacancy in his camp. Stay with him and think things over as long as you want to. As soon as you make up your mind to anything, let me know. We all shook hands, for that was one custom that had not died out in five hundred years, and I set out with Bill Hearn. Bill, like all the others, was clad in green. He was a big man. That is, he was about my own height, five feet eleven. This was considerably above the average now, for the race had lost something in stature, it seemed, through the vicissitudes of five centuries. 
Most of the women were a bit below five feet, and the men only a trifle above this height. For a period of two weeks Bill was to confine himself to camp duties, so I had a good chance to familiarize myself with the community life. It was not easy. There were so many marvels to absorb. I never ceased to wonder at the strange combination of rustic social life and feverish industrial activity. At least it was strange to me, for in my experience industrial development meant crowded cities, tenements, paved streets, profusion of vehicles, noise, hurrying men and women with strained or dull faces, vast structures and ornate public works. Here, however, was rustic simplicity, apparently isolated families and groups, living in the heart of the forest, with a quarter of a mile or more between households, a total absence of crowds, no means of conveyance other than the belts called jumpers, almost constantly worn by everybody, and an occasional rocket ship, used only for longer journeys, and underground plants or factories that were to my mind more like laboratories or engine rooms. Many of them were excavations as deep as mines, with well-finished, lighted, and comfortable interiors. These people were adepts at camouflage against air observation. Not only would their activity have been unsuspected by an airship passing over the center of the community, but even by an enemy who might happen to drop through the screen of the upper branches to the floor of the forest. The camps, or household structures, were all irregular in shape, and of colors that blended with the great trees among which they were hidden. There were 724 dwellings, or camps, among the Wyomings, located within an area of about 15 square miles. The total population was 8,688, every man, woman, and child, whether member or exchange, being listed. The plants were widely scattered through the territory also. Nowhere was anything like congestion permitted. So far as possible, the families and individuals were assigned to living quarters, not too far from the plants or offices in which their work lay. All able-bodied men and women alternated in two-week periods between military and industrial service, except those who were needed for household work. Since working conditions in the plants and offices were ideal, and everybody thus had plenty of healthy outdoor activity in addition, the population was sturdy and active. Laziness was regarded as nearly the greatest of social offenses. Hard work and general merit were variously rewarded with extra privileges, advancement to positions of authority, and with various items of personal equipment for convenience and luxury. In leisure moments I got great enjoyment from sitting outside the dwelling in which I was quartered with Bill Hearn and ten other men, watching the occasional passers-by as with leisurely but swift movements they swung up and down the forest trail, rising from the ground in long, almost horizontal leaps, occasionally swinging from one convenient branch overhead to another, before sliding back to the ground farther on. Normal traveling pace, where these trails were straight enough, was about twenty miles an hour. Such things as automobiles and railroad trains, the memory of them not more than a month old in my mind, seemed inexpressibly silly and futile compared with such convenience as these belts or jumpers offered. Bill suggested that I wander around for several days, from plant to plant, to observe and study what I could. The entire community had been apprised of my coming, 
my rating as an exchange reached every building and post in the community by means of ultronic broadcast everywhere i was welcomed in an interested and helpful spirit i visited the plants where ultronic vibrations were isolated from the ether and through slow processes built up into sub-electronic electronic and atomic forms into the two great synthetic elements ultron and inertron i learned something superficially at least of the processes of combined chemical and mechanical action through which were produced the various forms of synthetic cloth i watched the manufacture of the machines which were used at locations of construction to produce the various forms of building materials but i was particularly interested in the munitions plants and the rocket ship shops ultron is a solid of great molecular density and moderate elasticity which has the property of being one hundred percent conductive to those pulsations known as light electricity and heat since it is completely permeable to light vibrations it is therefore absolutely invisible and non-reflective its magnetic response is almost but not quite one hundred percent also it is therefore very heavy under normal conditions but extremely responsive to the repeller or anti-gravity rays such as the hans use as legs for their airships inertron is the second great triumph of american research and experimentation with ultronic forces it was developed just a few years before my awakening in the abandoned mine it is a synthetic element built up through a complicated heterodyning of ultronic pulsations from infrabalanced sub-ionic forms it is completely inert to both electric and magnetic forces in all the orders above the ultronic that is to say the sub-electronic the electronic the atomic and the molecular in consequence it has a number of amazing and valuable properties one of these is the total lack of weight another is a total lack of heat it has no molecular vibration whatever it reflects one hundred percent of the heat and light impinging upon it it does not feel cold to the touch of course since it will not absorb the heat of the hand it is a solid very dense in molecular structure despite its lack of weight of great strength and considerable elasticity it is a perfect shield against the disintegrator rays rocket guns are very simple contrivances so far as the mechanism of launching the bullet is concerned they are simple light tubes closed at the rear end with a trigger actuated pin for piercing the thick skin at the base of the cartridge this piercing of the skin starts the chemical and atomic reaction the entire cartridge leaves the tube under its own power at a very easy initial velocity just enough to ensure accuracy of aim so the tube does not have to be of heavy construction the bullet increases in velocity as it goes it may be solid or explosive it may explode on contact or on time or a combination of these two bill and i talked mostly of weapons military tactics and strategy strangely enough he had no idea whatever of the possibilities of the barrage though the tremendous effect of a curtain of fire with such high explosive projectiles as these modern rocket guns used was obvious to me but the barrage idea it seemed had been lost track of completely in the air wars that followed the first world war 
and in the peculiar guerrilla tactics developed by Americans in the later period of operations from the ground against Han airships, and in the gang wars which, until a few generations ago, I learned, had been almost continuous. I wonder, said Bill one day, if we couldn't work up some form of barrage to spring on the bad bloods. The big boss told me today that he's been in communication with the other gangs, and all are agreed that the bad bloods might as well be wiped out for good. That attempt on Wilma Deering's life, and their evident desire to make trouble among the gangs, has stirred up every community east of the Alleghenies. The boss says that none of the others will object if we go after them. So I imagine that before long we will. Now show me again how you worked that business in the Argonne Forest. The conditions ought to be pretty much the same. I went over it with him in detail, and gradually we worked out a modified plan that would be better adapted to our more powerful weapons and the use of jumpers. It will be easy, Bill exulted. I'll slide down and talk it over with the boss tomorrow. During the first two weeks of my stay with the Wyomings, Wilma Deering and I saw a great deal of each other. I naturally felt a little closer friendship with her in view of the fact that she was the first human being I saw after waking from my long sleep. Her appreciation of my saving her life, though I could not have done otherwise than I did in that matter, and most of all my own appreciation of the fact that she had not found it as difficult as the others to believe my story, operated in the same direction. I could easily imagine my story must have sounded incredible. It was natural enough, too, that she should feel an unusual interest in me. In the first place, I was her personal discovery. In the second, she was a girl of studious and reflective turn of mind. She never got tired of my stories and descriptions of the twentieth century. The others of the community, however, seemed to find our friendship a bit amusing. It seemed that Wilma had a reputation for being cold-hearted toward the opposite sex, and so others, not being able to appreciate some of her fine qualities as I did, misinterpreted her attitude much to their own delight. Wilma and I, however, ignored this as much as we could. End of Chapter 3 Chapter 4 A Han Air Raid There was a girl in Wilma's camp named Gertie Mann, with whom Bill Hearn was desperately in love, and the four of us used to go around a lot together. Gertie was a distinct type, whereas Wilma had the usual dark brown hair and hazel eyes that marked nearly every member of the community. Gertie had red hair, blue eyes, and very fair skin. She has been dead many years now, but I remember her vividly because she was a throwback in physical appearance to a certain twentieth-century type which I have found very rare among modern Americans also because the four of us were engaged as now in a discussion on this very point when I obtained my first experience of a Han air raid. We were sitting high on the side of a hill, overlooking the valley that teemed with human activity, invisible beneath its blankage of foliage. The other three, who knew of the Irish but vaguely and indefinitely, as a race on the other side of the globe, which, like ourselves, had succeeded in maintaining a precarious and fugitive existence in rebellion against the Mongolian domination of the earth, were listening with interest to my theory that Gertie's ancestors of several hundred years ago must have been Irish. I explained that Gertie was an Irish type, evidently a throwback, 
and that her surname might well have been Migman or Macman, and still more anciently Macmahonagam. They were interested too in my surmise that Gertie was the same name as that which had been Gertie or Gertrude in the twentieth century. In the middle of our discussions we were startled by an alarm rocket that burst high in the air far to the north, spreading a pall of red smoke that drifted like a cloud. It was followed by others at scattered points in the northern sky. "'A Han raid!' Bill exclaimed in amazement. "'The first in seven years!' "'Maybe it's just one of their ships off course,' I ventured. "'No,' said Wilma in some agitation. "'That would be green rockets.' Red means only one thing, Tony. They're sweeping the countryside with their disc beams. Can you see anything, Bill? We had better get under cover, Gertie said nervously. The four of us are bunched here in the open. For all we know, they may be twelve miles up, out of sight, yet looking at us with a projecto. Bill had been sweeping the horizon hastily with his glass, but apparently saw nothing. We had better scatter at that, he said finally. It's orders, you know. See? He pointed to the valley. Here and there a tiny human figure shot for a moment above the foliage of the treetops. "'That's bad,' Wilma commented as she counted the jumpers. "'No less than fifteen people visible, and all clearly radiating from a central point. Do they want to give away our location?' The standard orders covering air raids were that the population was to scatter individually. There should be no grouping or even pairing in view of the destructiveness of the disintegrator raid. Experience of generations had proved that if this were done, and everybody remained hidden beneath the tree screens, the Hans would have to sweep mile after mile of territory, foot by foot, to catch more than a small percentage of the community. Gertie, however, refused to leave Bill, and Wilma developed an equal obstinacy against quitting my side. I was inexperienced at this sort of thing, she explained, quite ignoring the fact that she was, too. She was only thirteen or fourteen years old at the time of the last air raid. However, since I could not argue her out of it, we leaped together about a quarter of a mile to the right, while Bill and Gertie disappeared down the hillside among the trees. Wilma and I both wanted a point of vantage from which we might overlook the valley and the sky to the north and we found it near the top of the ridge, where, protected from visibility by thick branches, we could look out between the tree-trunks and get a good view of the valley. No more rockets went up, except for a few of those warning red clouds drifting hazily in the blue sky, there was no visible indication of man's past or present existence anywhere in the sky or on the ground. Then Wilma gripped my arm and pointed. I saw it away off in the distance, looking like a phantom dirigible airship, in its coat of low-visibility paint, a bare specter. Seven thousand feet up,' Wilma whispered, crouching close to me. "'Watch!' The ship was about the same shape as the great dirigibles of the twentieth century that I had seen, but without the suspended control car, engines, propellers, rudders, or elevating planes. As it loomed rapidly nearer, I saw that it was wider and somewhat flatter than I had supposed. Now I could see the repeller rays that held the ship aloft, like searchlight beams, faintly visible in the bright daylight, and still faintly visible to the human eye at night. Actually, I had been informed by my instructors that there were two rays, 
the visible one generated by the ship's apparatus and directed toward the ground as a beam of carrier impulses and the true repeller ray the complement of the other in one sense induced by the action of the carrier and reacting in a concentrating upward direction from the mass of the earth becoming successively electronic atomic and finally molecular in its nature according to various ratios of distance between earth mass and carrier source until in the last analysis the ship itself actually is supported on an upward thrusting column of air much like a ball continuously supported on a fountain jet the raider neared with incredible speed its rays were both slanted astern at a sharp angle so that it slid forward with tremendous momentum the ship was operating two disintegrator rays though only in a casual intermittent fashion but whenever they flashed downward with blinding brilliancy forest rocks and ground melted instantaneously into nothing where they played upon them when later i inspected the scars left by these rays i found them some five feet deep and thirty feet wide the exposed surfaces being lava-like in texture but of a pale iridescent greenish hue no systematic use of the rays was made by the ship however until it reached a point over the center of the valley the center of the community's activities there it came to a sudden stop by shooting its repeller beams sharply forward and easing them back gradually to the vertical holding the ship floating and motionless then the work of destruction began systematically back and forth traveled the destroying rays plowing parallel furrows from hillside to hillside we gasped in dismay wilma and i as time after time we saw it plow through sections where we knew camps or plants were located this is awful she moaned a terrified question in her eyes how could they know the location so exactly tony did you see they were never in doubt they stalled at a predetermined spot and and it was exactly the right spot we did not talk of what might happen if the rays were turned in our direction we both knew we would simply disintegrate in a split second into mere scattered electronic vibrations strangely enough it was this self-reliant girl of the twenty-fifth century who clung to me a relatively primitive man of the twentieth less familiar than she with the thought of this terrifying possibility for moral support we knew that many of our companions must have been whisked into absolute non-existence before our eyes in these few moments the whole thing paralyzed us into mental and physical immobility for i do not know how long it couldn't have been long however for the rays had not plowed more than thirty of their twenty-foot furrows or so across the valley when I regained control of myself, and brought Wilma to herself by shaking her roughly. "'How far will this rocket-gun shoot, Wilma?' I demanded, drawing my pistol. "'It depends on your rocket, Tony. It will take even the longest-range rocket, but you could shoot more accurately from a longer tube. But why? You couldn't penetrate the shell of that ship with rocket force even if you could reach it.' I fumbled clumsily with my rocket-pouch, for I was excited. I had an idea I wanted to try. A hunch, I called it, forgetting that Wilma could not understand my ancient slang. But finally, with her help, 
I selected the longest-range explosive rocket in my pouch and fitted it to my pistol. It won't carry seven thousand feet, Tony, Wilma objected. But I took aim carefully. It was another thought that I had in my mind. The supporting repeller ray, I had been told, became molecular in character at what was called a logarithmic level of five. Below that it was a purely electronic flow or pulsation between the source of the carrier and the average mass of the earth. Below that level, if I could project my explosive bullet into the stream where it began to carry material substance upward, might it not rise with the air column, gathering speed and hitting the ship with enough impact to carry it through the shell? It was worth trying anyhow. Wilma became greatly excited, too, when she grasped the nature of my inspiration. Feverishly, I looked around for some formation of branches against which I could rest the pistol, for I had to aim most carefully. At last I found one. Patiently I sighted on the hulk of the ship far above us, aiming at the far side of it at such an angle as would, as far as I could estimate, bring my bullet path through the forward repeller beam. At last the sights wavered across the point I sought, and I pressed the button gently. For a moment we gazed breathlessly. Suddenly the ship swung bow down as on a pivot and swayed like a pendulum. Wilma screamed in her excitement. Oh, Tony, you hit it! You hit it! Do it again! Bring it down! We had only one more rocket of extreme range between us, and we dropped it three times in our excitement in inserting it in my gun. Then, forcing myself to be calm by sheer willpower, while Wilmer stuffed her little fist into her mouth to keep from shrieking, I sighted carefully again and fired. In a flash, Wilma had grasped the hope that this discovery of mine might lead to the end of the Han domination. The elapsed time of the rocket's invisible flight seemed an age. Then we saw the ship falling. It seemed to plunge lazily, but actually it fell with terrific acceleration, turning end over end, its disintegrator rays out of control, describing vast wild arcs, and once cutting a gash through the forest less than two hundred feet from where we stood. The crash with which the heavy craft hit the ground reverberated from the hills. The momentum of eighteen or twenty thousand tons in a sheer drop of seven thousand feet. A mangled mass of metal, it buried itself in the ground, with poetic justice in the middle of the smoking, semi-molten field of destruction it had been so deliberately plowing. The silence, the vacuity of the landscape, was oppressive as the last echoes died away. Then, far down the hillside, a single figure leaped exultantly above the foliage screen, and in the distance another, and another. In a moment the sky was punctured by signal rockets. One after another the little red puffs became drifting clouds. "'Scatter! Scatter!' Wilma exclaimed. In half an hour there'll be an entire Han fleet here from New York and another from Buffalo. They'll get this instantly on their recordographs and location finders. They'll blast the whole valley and the country for miles beyond. Come, Tony, there's no time for the gang to rally. See the signals? We've got to jump. Oh, I'm so proud of you. 
over the ridge we went in long leaps toward the east the country of the delawares from time to time signal rockets puffed in the sky most of them were the red warnings the scatter signals but from certain of the others which wilma identified as wyoming rockets she gathered that whoever was in command we did not know whether the boss was alive or not was ordering an ultimate rally toward the south and so we changed our course it was a great pity i thought that the clan had not been equipped throughout its membership with ultraphones but wilma explained to me that not enough of these had been built for distribution as yet although general distribution had been contemplated within a couple of months we traveled far before nightfall overtook us trying only to put as much distance as possible between ourselves and the valley when gathering dusk made jumping too dangerous we sought a comfortable spot beneath the trees and consumed part of our emergency rations it was the first time i had tasted the stuff a highly nutritious synthetic substance called concentro which was however a bit bitter and unpalatable but as only a mouthful or so was needed it did not matter neither of us had a cloak but we were both thoroughly tired and happy so we curled up together for warmth i remember wilma making some sleepy remark about our mating as she cuddled up as though the matter were all settled and my surprise at my own instant acceptance of the idea for i had not consciously thought of her that way before but we both fell asleep at once in the morning we found a little time for love-making the practical problem facing us was too great wilma felt that the wyoming plan must be to rally in the susquehanna territory but she had her doubts about the wisdom of this plan in my elation at my success in bringing down the han ship and my newly found interest in my charming companion who was from my viewpoint of another century at once more highly civilized and yet more primitive than myself i had forgotten the ominous fact that the han ship i had destroyed must have known the exact location of the wyoming works this meant to wilma's logical mind either that the han had perfected new instruments as yet unknown to us or that somewhere among the wyomings or some other nearby gang there were traitors so degraded as to commit that unthinkable act of trafficking in information with the hans in either contingency she argued other han raids would follow and since the susquehannas had a highly developed organization and more than usually productive plants the next raid might be expected to strike them but at any rate it was clearly our business to get in touch with the other fugitives as quickly as possible so in spite of muscles that were sore from the excessive leaping of the day before we continued on our way we traveled for only a couple of hours when we saw a multicolored rocket in the sky some ten miles ahead of us bear to the left tony wilma said and listen for the whistle why i asked haven't they given you the rocket code yet she replied that's what the green followed by yellow and purple means to concentrate five miles east of the rocket position you know the rocket position itself might draw a play of disintegrator beams it did not take us long to reach the neighborhood of the indicated rallying though we were now traveling beneath the trees with but an occasional leap to a top branch to see if any more rocket smoke was floating above and soon we heard a distant whistle 
we found about half the gang already there in a spot where the trees met high above a little stream the big boss and raid bosses were busy reorganizing the remnants we reported to boss hart at once he was silent but interested when he heard our story you two stick close to me he said adding grimly i'm going back to the valley at once with a hundred picked men and i'll need you End of chapter 4